Hello, I'm Laurie. And I'm Steve. And welcome to the first episode of This Podcast is Gay. Right, well, better tell the audience what we're actually doing. So this is a podcast. Uh, oh, excuse me. <clears throat> He's going through puberty at the moment. Thank you. <laughs> In this podcast, we're going to be meeting people from the LGBT community to explore how their gender and sexual identity has informed their lives and their work. Okay, so something about us, Laurie? Um, as you already know, my name's Laurie. Uh, my name's Steve. Um, but we can't reveal too much about Steve because of um, legal reasons. Legal reasons. So uh, just about me. Um, I'm 32, devastatingly handsome. Uh, that's I think that's everything you need to know, really. Well, you've missed out the most important piece of information. Um, great lover. Your mother might be listening <laughs> to this. Uh, what's the most important bit of information, Steve? That you're my boyfriend. Oh, yeah. So Steve and I are boyfriends. Um how and long have we been going out, Laurie? Uh, we've been going out three years now. When's our third anniversary? I don't know, Steve. In June sometime, I think? No. In July. May? July. Oh, well, there we go. Yes, this this particular edition of this podcast is coming from Steve's bedroom for acoustic purposes only. only. So, today we're speaking to a couple of filmmakers. Richard and Daniel Mansfield, based in Nottingham, are cult, gay, horror and thriller producers or makers of films. They've produced quite a prolific output. What was that, Laurie? Quite a vast output. And they also happen to be married as well as being filmmakers together. Let's listen to a clip from one of their films called The Demonic Tapes. And parental advisory warning, this might scare you. It's Christmas Day tomorrow, and I'm alone. But I found these tapes, a whole series of them, recorded in this house. There's a woman, she's a medium. In my hand, I hold a recorder. If you can speak to us, then I will be able to hear you. Gosh! Well, that made my stomach rumble. It was so scary sounding. Yeah, I just need a moment to to get over that. Um, easily scared easily scared easily scared so well without further ado if your juices are wetted let's uh, <laughs> let's have a chat to Richard and Daniel alright so welcome to Richard and Daniel Mansfield thank you so much for joining us today why don't you tell us the story of your filmmaking Okay, so uh, my name is Richard, and my husband Daniel, um, and I um, we met we met back in two thousand eight, didn't we? Mm-hmm. I've probably been making puppet films since about two thousand and five, so I was making films already with marionettes, um, and I think when I met Daniel, I was still using marionettes and starting to use shadow puppets, 
and I think I was making a film called Frau Trude when we first met, wasn't I? Mm-hmm. And I was filming it. I, I was renting a, a room in a big sort of Victorian house in quite close to Muswell Hill, and uh, making this. I had a little set in the bedroom with the sort of painted sets and all the puppets, which were marionettes, so they're on strings. And uh, I was just making sort of dark, crazy fairy tales. Mm. Um, and I think you were quite sort of interested, weren't you? Yeah, well, I, I was kind of amazed because I trained as an actor and I'd sort of done bits and bobs, but I'd never seen somebody making a film project completely independently on their own and sort of Blue Peter style. <laughs> and yeah. I, I was absolutely enchanted by it because um, even though he had very little in terms of money or resources, what he created was kind of magical and enchanting. And uh, so I suppose that was part of falling in love with him. But it did also make me go, wow, this guy doesn't need permission from anybody to go and make a film. He's just going to go and do it. And even if he's got nothing, he'll still make something out of nothing. And I suppose that inspired me then to start messing about with making short films. Mm. And then at some point I made a short film with real people, not dolls or puppets, and that was sort of the springboard for a, a big surge of creativity mm. between us, where we both suddenly started making feature films, Blue yes. Peter style, <laughs> yeah. with very little resources. And we didn't really know what we were doing. We just sort of made it up as we were going along, didn't we? Mm, yeah. And I suppose that naivety uh, added to the productivity because we didn't know any better. And also we didn't really have any, we might have had sort of those crazy Hollywood dreams, but we were still quite realistic about stuff. So we weren't precious about any of it. Mm, Yeah. And and we have ended up making how many films? Uh, 13 feature films between us and probably about 45 short films, I think. There's loads. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Prolific. It seems that even with the puppet films, the shadow puppet films, there's a very particular genre that you were drawn to from the outset. And then in the films you've made since, I guess you'd say they're on particular themes. Both of us have always been fascinated by dark, macabre things. Yes. And we both love horror films and thriller films. I'd say Richard's more geared towards horror and I'm more geared towards thriller, but there's a lot of crossover in that. Mm. And we are both massive cinephiles. We just love films, love going to the cinema. Yes. Um, And of course, those genres, there is a prolific amount of low-budget content created. So Mm -hmm. not only were we inspired by it, but we also realised that that was a, a safer bet for selling a film because there's a known audience for it. Yes. So that has been, it's just sort of fed into everything, hasn't it? Mm. And your well, your first film was feature, was Meltdown, wasn't it? Yes. And that was, you made it as a series of short films that you then filmed. You, you, I think you always had the idea, didn't you, to make it into a feature? Yeah, I thought if I got through all of the short films, then I could film a linking device that would bring it all mm. together. Yeah, yeah. And... I was quite sensible in that every time I made a short film, I would just challenge myself with another sort of technical aspect to master. So all of those initial short films, I didn't record sound on any of them. I dubbed everything, 
but it meant that I didn't have to worry about the sound while I was filming mm-hmm. it. So yeah. you could do, you could record a scene on an overpass where people are having a conversation, which in in a, a sort of a more uh, legit film production that would be impossible. <laughs> um, so with all those those sort of experiments, each time we challenged ourselves to try an, a new technique or to master something else. And I suppose the other thing that's interesting about us is that we don't make the films together. We One of us will be in charge and it will be their film and the other will basically be Boy Friday. Yeah, the runner. And do all of the sort of admin, technical, making cups of tea, or we need something from the shops, go to the shops, go and buy it, hold a light up here, all of that sort of thing. Be a demon. Yeah, (laughs) and we have been in each other's projects for all those sort of difficult-to-cast parts. The parts that no one wants. Yeah, that's what we do for each other. Oh, Daniel will do that, yeah. (laughs) Well, I had a question you both referenced, being drawn to to dark themes. Um, Yes. And I just wondered, you know, have either of you sort of reflected on where that might come from? Well, I have a theory that when we were younger, we were sort of making our own internet. And by that, I mean, we were searching out all of the taboo stuff that was shown late night on Channel 4 or was... uh, Yes. You got something referenced in a library book and then you would go and research that more... And I think because we've always had that fascin... Firstly, you know, growing up gay, uh, at the period that we were growing up, it was taboo. So just to be ourselves was a taboo thing. And therefore, I think our interest in things that are more taboo, like horror films, transgressive things, we were seeking that sort of stuff out to try and help us make sense of the world, maybe. And so therefore, we've ended up you know, having a, a very rich um, knowledge of film history and, and art and culture generally because we were seeking it out. Mm-hmm. But also being gay, you're looking for escapism, aren't you? And there is a vicarious thrill through watching horror films and thriller films mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that maybe we identified with more because we were gay. Yeah, and I'm just trying to think what that is in what it is exactly in horror that is very appealing to to LGBT I think there's there's a lot of I don't know outsiders Mm -hmm. or kind of fighting you're sort of you're essentially fighting off the killer or the and I don't know I think I I think the slasher films are quite popular when I was sort of like a young teenager and I watched a lot of them but Mm -hmm. I think also as a sort of being the outsider watching all the popular people who had everything that I didn't you know like being murdered yeah well yeah I mean they had it coming you know they had everything and we had nothing yeah I've not thought of it like that but I think that's that's very valid yeah (laughs) it was quite sort of cathartic not that I wanted to do that but it was just you you know these films presented these sort of hot sexy people who've who are sort of sexually active and you know they have a they have a very clear path in terms of they haven't got to question their identity uh-huh. they just follow a path and then you know um and they're not, they're not necessarily nice people as well which i think uh you kind of identify with the kind of the meanness of the world around you you know i guess it's interesting given that lgbt people are so much more visible in society um today why we don't see more of lgbt issues in cinema 
I think the other big thing here is that queer culture is not good at celebrating its own artists unless they are very commercially successful or on a, with commercial backing behind them. And the thing I often bemoan is that if you look at the queer new wave uh, cinema of the 90s, we had this kind of explosion of independent queer film and because we had all of the film festivals gearing up as well, these films got lots of exposure, they got distribution, the audience was starved, so there was a, a chance for all this to be celebrated. And I would have thought that by the time we got to this point where we can make anyone can make a film, basically, that we would have a huge, varied um, pool of artists bringing out work. But that's not what's happened. It's sort of... It's almost vanished, really. So... When you now see uh, LGBT projects that are getting a lot of fanfare, they're generally not made by gay people for gay people. And they've usually got lottery money behind them. So these films are not necessarily... um, uh, They can't make the money that uh, a regular independent film would make. They're not going to reach that wide audience. So they wouldn't exist without the lottery funding anyway. Because I guess one film Laura and I went to see was Love, Simon, which was kind of billed as the first gay-led, big, big, budget, led, big yeah. budget romantic comedy. I thought it was I thought it was quite a good film. It was well made and had good performances, didn't it? And it was very sweet. And I think we were both a bit like, even though we were a bit cynical about, oh, you know, romantic comedy. And then by the end of it, we were quite, I seem to remember being maybe quite affected by it even. So, moving on to more about your life together. So, recently uh, you moved from uh, London up to Nottingham. What was behind that move? We'd had a conversation maybe a few years ago, maybe even longer, and I think, and you, Daniel, said, um, I don't know if I want to live in London my whole life. And I think I kind of went, <gasps> what? What does that mean? And then I think just slowly as the years went on, I think I probably had sort of similar thoughts, but I didn't really know what that would mean in terms of not living in London, because we both... I think also being gay, you kind of think, oh, where else am I going to go? How mm-hmm. am I going to meet people if I'm, you know, um, experience of growing up in smaller communities, not fantastic. So moving to a, a sort of a, a, the big city seemed, I think, the only, I, I personally didn't think I had any other option. And so I think by the time we actually left London, we'd both been there for about, what, 15 years yeah. or so? And I mean, by that point, you know, we're in our 30s, we've done clubbing, we've done... You know, um, well, we started to research, didn't we? we so did, we started yeah. to seriously visit places that yes. we thought could be contenders of where we could go. Yeah, and Nottingham suited us in that it's it's brilliant for its central location. Mm-hmm. So in terms of where you are in the country, you're so, it's easy access to lots of places. Yep, we knew people here. We had friends here mm-hmm. already. Yep, and it is just a very friendly place to live isn't it London was amazing in that we met the most incredible friends in London and we had an incredible creative life in London but at the time at which we were looking to move on our friends were moving on as well weren't they absolutely so we could see other people who were leaving London and going this isn't sustainable and I suppose that was it we could see that at a certain point we might be the last people at the party (laughs) yes yeah 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 and of course we're in a different position in terms of we are you know, in terms of gay rights and sort of how moving to a smaller town isn't, you know, it isn't the same as it would have been 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, that's true. You know, everywhere has prides now and 
we're protected by law, we're married, all of these things weren't that way when we were growing up and getting our first jobs, we weren't protected by law. And so all of those things, I think, do create, uh, you can actually go to smaller places and not be worried that it's going to be some gay-hating, small-minded place, because... The world has changed that much in 15 years. Yeah, that's the, I suppose that's the other thing we were going to ask, whether you've noticed any difference in terms of how accepting people are of you as a couple in Nottingham compared to in London. Work, you know, it, it's, it's, we're all out at work and we've, we've made new friends here. It's no, di- it's no different to London. And I think um, where we live is quite nice and sort of... Quite sort of Muswell Hilly, isn't it? Really? <laughs> yeah, Muswell Hill on a on a pauper's budget. Yeah, yeah, because you know it's you can have these sort of nicer things for less, uh, and it's very arty and and I think Nottingham is you know is is does have a quite an open feel to it. You know, in the house next to us, there are two trans people living. I think it might be four. Four trans because they've had two living. new flatmates oh, they have, who are also they? trans, but also I think their friends in the other two houses, all by the uh-huh. same landlord. I think it's all kind of mixed. L- so we're in like a L- little row of houses that have all ended up being LGBT houses. So we've just found a gay ghetto, really, haven't we? Completely well, LGBT by accident. ghetto, I should say. Yeah. I, I guess I'm really interested your reflections on how you think about your kind of sexuality as part of your identities. It doesn't feel as much like um, a, a sort of a death sentence as it did when we were younger. Like you're going to be, if you're going to be gay, I remember vividly my mom having a conversation with me when I can only have been about ten or eleven or something, and telling me that gay people led, led very difficult lives, and if that was the life that I had, then I should expect to lead a miserable life. And um, I, don't, I don't know if people still have conversations with their kids like that now. But then again, I was a very flamboyant child. So <laughs> right. I think she was trying to put the fear of God into me. Yeah. But the world isn't like that now, is it? No, it isn't. And I mean, you, you know, you think of all the things like in terms of how much more effective HIV testing is. And, you know, when you'd have a when you go for a test back in the day, it would be this kind of like, it was like, was it three months you had to wait for your results as opposed to like an, you mm. know, 20 minutes now or whatever it is, an hour. Uh, and things like that, which is sort of terrifying. And of course, we were much closer to the Thatcher years and don't mm-hmm. die of ignorance and, and being gay is a death sentence. Uh, we, we, even though we kind of, we missed the worst of that and we, we you know we, we we missed out we you know when you have older friends who talk of knowing people that died of uh, HIV and AIDS we kind of missed that but we still had the sort of we still I think internalized those messages the messages and the fear and the shame mm-hmm. and I think it's you know you we've worked through it thankfully you know but you still remember you do still remember don't you I think the thing is that we do uh, when we talk about our lives as gay people we always acknowledge how lucky we are yes we're lucky to be British and to be protected by law and to have these amazing opportunities to express ourselves our sexuality our stories because there are so many places around Mm. the world where these you would be killed for these thoughts, mm-hmm. let alone these actions. Yeah. And for us, it makes us appreciate what we have. So, you know, because we grew up thinking we wouldn't have these things, that now we do have them, we appreciate the value of them. And mm-hmm. I think we take pleasure in in smaller things, maybe, because 
that we realise how precious they are. Yes. And a lot of people seem to sort of go, how how do you guys make your relationship work? You don't seem to fight and you seem to work everything out. Well, that's because we appreciate the value of what we have. Yeah, like this doesn't, this isn't... This is a rare thing we have found. Yeah, we might, we thought we would never have it growing up. So we're not going to sort of squander it, I suppose. Yeah, we're going to cherish it. Um, and it, it is, it's strange because we are at this period of reflection on our lives generally, mm-hmm. having had this major life change and all of the uh, show business, entertainment, whatever, that's all having a major shift. So we are sort of standing back and looking and going, well, what happens next? And to be honest, we don't quite know at the moment. No. <laughs> all, all, bet, all bets are off. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really interesting that Daniel and Richard both felt very comfortable in Nottingham, um, really able to express themselves as gay men. And yet there were still some things that Daniel in particular felt he wouldn't feel comfortable doing. You know, the thing is, is that I I don't think I would ever hold Richard's hand in the street. No, I think you're more reserved than I am, actually. I am. And there would always be part of me that would worry for our safety. Mm-hmm. Always. No matter how safe the environment is, yeah. I will always be fearful for it. And that will be a stronger impulse for me than wanting to celebrate whatever. But then again, I don't... I am celebrating it. I'm living here on a normal street with my gay husband and nobody is giving us any hassle. We're very lucky. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I, I feel the same thing. I think I'm I'm not as worried, but I, I, I do get those same things that we, you know, that flash through your head if you go, is it worth it? You know, if you're going to get some hassle off someone. Or it's an, obviously it's a perceived hassle. It's, it's a, a, an imagined thing that hasn't existed yet. But we also that this is partly from growing up when we grew up and you just old habits die hard don't they mm-hmm. <laughs> I think a big part of it is that you just have that inbuilt whereas I've seen young you know two young lads holding hands skipping through the streets of Nottingham not giving a monkeys and I think that's wonderful well thank you for being our guests today thanks for having us it's an honour to be your first guest <laughs> you never forget your first time. Yeah, this is our first. This is our first podcast. It, it? is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Richard and Daniel, that was brilliant. Thank you. So that's it from us this time. Thanks for listening. We've really enjoyed making this episode of This Podcast is Gay and are looking forward to making the next one. So, Laurie, how can people get in touch with us if they'd like to? Well, we've got a Twitter account, at Podcast is Gay. Because it wouldn't allow this podcast. Yeah, it wouldn't allow us to have a This Podcast is Gay too many letters. That's a shame. Yeah. So, at Podcast is Gay. So, feel free to tweet us on there. We'd be really interested in any comments that you've got. Anyone that you think might want to be interviewed or... Even if you'd like to be interviewed yourself, get in touch. Just get in touch with us. So that's all for this time. Until the next time, bye. bye.